This week on the Backtable Podcast. The theme that many of us use to fuel our passion for life is that we'd like to have a better role for our kids. And with certain circumstances in the United States over the last year or two, I think that passion has been fueled. I have for one, and I suspect others are, are looking for a way to effectively use that passion in a meaningful way that could hopefully lead us towards a path of change. And so the idea of having urology for social responsibility, so not just urologists themselves, but the broad community of people who are in urology, including our children, come together and talk about important social issues, get guidance from people with knowledge about things like advocacy and raising funds, being an activist in a meaningful way, in a productive way, in a safe way, something to take us beyond Twitter to a place where the people that we hope will listen and we hope will respond will do so. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Backtable podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. This is Aditya Bagrodia as your host this week, and I'm very excited to introduce our guest today, Manoj Manga from UC San Diego Department of Urology, where Manoj is the chair. Welcome to the show, Manoj. How are you doing today? Aditya, I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Big fan. You know, I, I've been looking forward to this episode, Manoj. I've had the distinct pleasure of getting to know you, I guess, for personally for about the last 18 months as I you know, started the transition to San Diego. And one of the things I've absolutely admired is your introspection, your honesty, your candor about the whole process and, and actually many aspects of your, of your life. I saw that in our initial onboarding uh, when I came here and certainly kind of throughout your governance of our department here in San Diego. And, and you've got a, a really interesting story, at least in my opinion. So maybe let's just start at the beginning, you know, Manoj as a kid, where, where does this begin? Sure. Well, I'm sure my recollections of Manoj as a kid would differ greatly from my mom's and uh, you'd probably get a more interesting story from her. I was born in Belfast, Northern Ireland. I was the second child. My, my sister was born a year and a half before me. Uh, very proud of her. She's a vice chair or just recently retired actually from vice chair at Baylor in ob -Guide. And so you might immediately jumped to the question, well, what did your parents do? And you're right. Both our my parents were uh, physicians. They had met in medical school and, and fallen in love. It's kind of a different path than many Indians of that time where arranged marriages were, were more the norm. And so they had a, the opportunity to try to navigate that experience with their family in terms of embracing love and embracing each other, but maybe coming from different backgrounds and meeting a bit of resistance from that standpoint. So after overcoming those uh, issues, they moved to England to do their postgraduate studies. My dad was a pediatrician and mom was a um, obstetrician. And after their training in England, they moved to Belfast, Northern Ireland to have their first postings. And it was there that my sister and I were born and we grew up uh, for the first formative years of our lives. We moved at eight to Canada, Kingston, Ontario. Well, let me ask you a little bit more about Belfast. I know eight years old is kind of right at that cusp where, where you've got some of those memories. I can't say that, you know, when we think about like the Indian diaspora, that Belfast, Ireland is the first spot that kind of jumps into my mind. But how was it? I mean, you know, being a minority, 
presumably not being raised in, in the same religious traditions. How did you find that to be? Well, I think there's a certain amount of innocent naivety to children where you might be a little bit unaware of the things going on around you. So I couldn't necessarily comment in terms of the multicultural blend in Belfast at the time or any senses of discrimination, though I certainly watched movies since then that would allude to perhaps race tensions within the United Kingdom at the time. Certainly what was surrounding us was war and terrorism in the IRA and conflict that was between Catholics and Protestants, between nationalists and the UK and in Ireland. And so many of the similar themes that our parents saw during the partition of India and ongoing conflicts we see in the Ukraine, in the Middle East. So unfortunately, the world has been pestered by these types of relationships and conflicts since existence. And that was the environment that I found myself in at the age of eight. So from the child's perspective, we would have bomb scares, bomb drills. There was one time where I was walking down the street with my dad and glass showered down from the building that was exploding. But those types of memories, as I grew older, became a question of, well, was that a dream or was it reality? And, and it took my sister to kind of assure me that, yes, it was actually something that happened. The impetus to move to Canada was another interesting turn of events. In Ireland at the time, the license plates denoted whether you were a physician or not. And as my dad was getting into his car one day, paper bag was put over his head and he was taken to see a member of the IRA who'd been shot. And so after that kidnapping, he decided that, you know, maybe it's time to move the family. And recently watched the movie Belfast on a plane and it really resonated with me some of the things that people were going through at the time. And uh, it was a, a very good reflection of what life was like. I, th I think it's safe to say, compared to most people currently, at least practicing urology in the U.S., with a typical U.S. background, where at least we take certain things like safety for granted, that that your childhood, at least for those first eight years, was was pretty different. And you know, whether reinforced with stories or actually recollected. That's a part of your fabric. I would say a bit of yes and no, because as you know, did you nowadays, it's, it's dangerous growing up in the United States too. And so I suspect some of the same fears that my parents had sending us to school are the fears that many parents are feeling around the country today. Fair point, fair point. And I guess our experiences are individualized. So general kind of scares, a kidnapping of your dad, that sounds particularly horrifying. And then it was time to shift gears and, and take another trip. Yeah. So we moved across the pond, as they say, to Canada and found ourselves living in Kingston, Ontario, Canada, and lived there for my, the rest of my schooling, as well as my undergraduate career. Really didn't get a sense of what urology was. The decision to pursue medicine was more a path of least resistance, you could say, as opposed to a burning passion. I enjoyed music. I wanted to be a musician and, and I'm sure you would commiserate with our upbringings that the response was music can be a, uh, a hobby, but you need something a little bit more substantive to support your family when you grow up. And so I found myself in medical school and realized I really enjoyed it. And so I, I do feel very fortunate to have, to a certain degree, been stirred in that direction. And reached a point where I could embrace it as something that I really enjoyed and wanted to do and make a full commitment. And at the same time, I, I certainly feel 
fortunate when so many people who have much more of a burning desire to become a physician find many hurdles in their way. So there's no question that I, I take every day with a, a lot of appreciation and, and thanks for where I am in the times not really understanding how I got here. Yeah, that absolutely resonates. I was pretty interested in religious studies as my primary area of focus in college. And it was super interesting, but, you know, kind of as I've grown and developed, I can see how the religious aspects of it and the medicine, the biology are intricately related. But I would sometimes say, you know, the religious part is what kind of keeps me interesting. And, and the medicine part is is a more practical nature, but it's just like yourself. I mean, the medicine part is intrinsically fascinating and extremely rewarding. But you've actually been able to kind of hold on to your musical roots in a decent to big way. Can you tell us a little bit about that as an outlet, what you still kind of get involved with, some of the highlights of, of your musical career? Well, certainly. And again, uh, the path to saxophone was one that I'm not necessarily proud of. I started off on French horn and then went to trumpet and then ended up with the saxophone driven primarily by how hard am I going to need to practice to master this instrument. So fortunately, the saxophone was something that came a little bit more naturally to me than the more challenging instruments that I tried at first. But hopefully that hasn't been a common theme that has followed me throughout the rest of my career. Saxophone, it brings a lot of pleasure to me, mainly because of the opportunities it gives you to interact with people in ways that otherwise you wouldn't be able to. You might draw some similarities in terms of the teamwork that we experience in the operating room, where by getting together, having a, an idea in mind with common purpose, perhaps not a, having worked together in the past, perhaps doing a bit of improvising, but counting on each other to play their part, listening actively and responding to what others are doing. I think those are fun skills to, to learn and to practice, whether it's in a music studio or on a concert hall in the operating room or, or even at home playing with your kids and trying to engage with them in a, in a meaningful way. So I, I really enjoy music for that reason. And not to put you on the spot, but you, you've had some kind of high profile gigs played with some, uh, some pretty famous folks. Yes. That's probably better not to put me on the spot for, for that. But I've, I've, again, I've been very fortunate for uh, opportunities that have come my way, uh, usually by chance. And, uh, the best part is Playing with people who are better than you raises your game. And I think that also echoes with, with everything that we do, whether it's in sports or at work. It's not so much that you're learning from them, but it's inspirational, especially when you're actively listening to what others are doing to raise the bar. And that goes along with what you do here on this show, that you're your guests and what you do to spread the message of what can be done, what needs to be done uh, as far as all of us. So thank you. Absolutely. So. You stumbled upon medicine kind of because we wanted to keep mom and dad proud. That totally resonates. And then it, it developed into a passion. And I'm just curious, you know, urology and then endourology. Walk us through that path and maybe some of the early career years in your life, Manoj. Yeah, I would say almost every turn of my path has been to a certain degree influenced by things that one might not consider traditional motivation. And so I don't know if that's unique to me or if most people find that where they end up isn't necessarily where they thought they would be, how they got there. It wasn't necessarily what they planned, but that's certainly been the theme for me. And I suppose the way I use that experience when I'm talking to students is to, to tell them, you know, you can't necessarily plan your whole life. And yes, you might be really focused and stressed about getting these sub-internships and applying to these hundred schools and 
something good is going to happen to your life. As long as you're kind to people, honest to yourself and work hard and what that something is and how it happens, I think one just needs to be open to it as opposed to necessarily trying too hard to reach it. That kind of resonates uh, in a lot of ways. I routinely get uh, messages from first-year medical students that I'm interested in urology, and of course, it's wonderful. But uh, you know that balance between ultra-goal-directed behavior without a breadth of experiences from the get-go versus a little bit more of a diversity of experiences and coming to something that you find to be enjoyable. I mean, two books, Range versus Grit, kind of epitomize these ideas of a, a broad general exposure versus a very directed exposure. But it seems like you had more of that broader exposure came to medicine and then towards urology. So my, uh, my turn towards the surgical field occurred when I was starting an IV and then during uh, an emergency rotation and the chief of surgery happened to be walking through the ER and said, oh, you're good with your hands. You should be a surgeon. So that was the, the thought that went into, oh yeah, I should think about a surgical field. And then started to think about working with my hands. And I think as all of us in urology do the balance between clinical practice and surgical practice. At my school, we did not have a urology department or a urology rotation. So the interest I developed was in trauma. Uh, and then another interest I had was reconstructive plastic surgery. So my initial thoughts were find a good general surgery program that was strong in both those aspects and ended up at Tulane University as a categorical general surgery resident. During my first year, I had the opportunity to do a, a one-month rotation with uh, Dr. Mopardi, who was our faculty in a, a bit of a more rural area, Alexandria, Louisiana. And we worked at both the VA and the county hospital there. So through Dr. Mopardi's mentorship, as long as working with a senior resident in the hospital, it gave me an opportunity to find out not only more about urology, but also have a bit more latitude in terms of the experience because it was a, an off main campus rotation and uh, really enjoyed that experience. So the next well-planned step was that a uh, spot happened to open up in urology and I unfortunately coincided almost with where I was in my two years of general surgery pre-urology years. At the same time, I had a chance to meet my wife-to-be and started thinking about life balance and trauma surgery versus urology, what it would be like to raise a family. And, and those are some of the things that helped me make the decision to shift into urology. There was a one-year gap between when that spot would open and when my two years of general surgery finished. So that was kind of what then started the path towards an academic career because that one year was spent with Jim Robertson, Bill Brannon up at the Primate Center at Tulane and uh, had an opportunity to engage in a year of research. And most of the research uh, was focused on the areas of pyelonephritis, endourology, and andrology. So those were the areas where I started to build an interest from the academic standpoint. And as you know, once the wheel gets turning or the ball gets rolling in academia, it's hard to stop it. And that's really what started the drive to become an academician. With that said, I was always very proud of my, my mom and my dad and my dad's accomplishments specifically in academia. So I think uh, they certainly served as role models to pursue an academic career too. Yeah, my first kind of soiree into research was largely 
personally driven because my wife or fiance wife to be at the time was a year behind me. And I thought it might make sense to take a year off so we could graduate together and match in the same residency and so on. And little did I know that that was going to be, you know, a transformative experience, spent a year doing research, just absolutely loved it. So I, I could totally see the, see the parallels. Edicia, as you said that, I was reflecting that. So the first thing we've already touched on is that you can't necessarily plan your life. And this, what you just mentioned highlights how your professional life and your personal life intermingle. So some of the decisions and paths that you follow are really influenced by both. And I think that's happens in the good times and also in the bad times. Totally. So Tulane was obviously a excellent experience, great faculty over there. I know you've had a lot of lasting memories from there. Then you kind of have been at several prestigious institutions throughout the U.S. Yes, I, I would first need to Acknowledge the wonderful mentors I've had at each step at Tulane at UC San Diego when I was here the first time. And then from there, University of Minnesota, Cleveland Clinic, and then now back to San Diego. So each institution has had its strengths. It's had its individuals who've really molded not only my career, but also provided me with mentorship and guidance and support. And those individuals aren't just the chairman or chairwoman. They aren't just the faculty members who've mentored me, but also the residents and fellows and students. And each of those individuals then become the extended family that you draw on for support in times of need. And so it's been really valuable. If I was to kind of look at the different stages of my career at that time, UC San Diego was a smaller division of urology. A lot of support and latitude in terms of how I wanted to craft my career provided to me by Dr. Schmidt, the chair at the time, senior mentor, Will Parsons, who was really a an example of a true surgeon scientist, and then some younger colleagues, including Mike Albo and Lou Alighieri, who continue to be our partners here. So it was really a good group, a wonderful chance to spread my wings. And from there, the move to University of Minnesota allowed me to focus my career a little bit. Here, initially at UCSD, I did both the andrology and the neurology, and realized fairly quickly that to be successful academically, it required more focus. It was difficult at any way to be everywhere at the same time. And at the time, I enjoyed the clinical side of endurology, and I enjoyed the research side of andrology. I enjoyed both, but if you were to say what were the best of the, of the two, that, that was kind of how I had landed on those two areas to focus on, and then focused more on endurology as I made the move to Minnesota. Perfect. And then Obviously, at some point, andrology took a bit of a backseat, and I think it would be safe to say that at Cleveland, you really established yourself as one of our preeminent endourologists. Can you talk a little bit about your time there? And the word preeminent, I can never see myself in that view. There are so many people that I look up to in terms of individuals like Drs. Clayman, Pearl, Preminger, Segura, Lingaman. Just to name a few that really the heroes for me when I was learning and continue to be the heroes. And, and when I look at their contributions and accomplishments, it's using a word like preeminent to me just doesn't seem like it feels right. So I've been fortunate, I would say, to be able to like make small contributions. The biggest contributions have been able to work with real talented fellows and residents who are able to accomplish much more than I could ever accomplish. So that, that would be the biggest thing I feel very fortunate to is the people I've worked with as opposed to anything I've done myself. And then came the the next major and ongoing 
chapter, which was really in the context of, I think, a lot going on globally, personally. Tell us about your transition to San Diego in the context of a pandemic. I can say for myself, relocating as we get older becomes more and more challenging. Just talk a little bit about that phase uh, of your life, if you don't mind. Yeah, so as Aditya, as you know, the process of making a move is a fairly prolonged one from the start of maybe I'll look to interviewing and analyzing opportunities to negotiating and eventually making a decision. So all of that happened well before a pandemic was upon us. Indeed, it wasn't until the time to actually get on a plane came and, and the pandemic hit where the first decision was, well, do I fly or do I drive? And uh, the other thing was, is, as we all recall, when the pandemic first hit, just the uncertainty of what is going to happen. It was like when we were medical students and AIDS first entered our lives, the fear in everyone about not being certain of what was going on, how it was transmitted, seeing how difficult things were in New York and other areas that were hit first in the United States really made it a bit of a fearful time to be saying bye to your family in Cleveland and driving cross country to San Diego and not being sure when or if you'd see them again. So I'm just describing what I think everyone in the health professionals felt during those months of, of February, March, and April in 2020. Once I got here, I think the COVID crisis really helped me appreciate what a wonderful place I'd moved to. And I think many places, including Cleveland and other places, really rose to the occasion. In San Diego, I, I saw leaders in the healthcare system, in the medical school, in the community, rise to the occasion, address the crisis in a thoughtful and meaningful way that really impacted the results. And uh, it also gave me a glimpse at a faculty that I was becoming part of their family. It gave me a glimpse into their character. And I could see how well they worked together as a team, how well they worked at a time of adversity, how selfless they were in terms of making personal sacrifices to help support those in greater need. So those are the types of things that under regular circumstances, they're still there, but you don't necessarily appreciate them. Not to say that I would wish those circumstances on everyone who's, who's starting off as a chair, but it certainly made me very appreciative of the position that I'd landed in. Yeah, I can only imagine coming in more on the tail end where there's a lot more virtual, less in-person. You know, I think the whole process of acclimating and synthesizing does get prolonged. And then on top of that, if I'm not mistaken, you were also secretary of the AUA at that time. Is that correct? Actually, the, those years ran from, I believe, 2015 to 2019. So it was about a year and a bit after I had transitioned that role to Dr. John Denso. Tell us a little bit about that. I know that you've, you've mentioned to me that that was a unique and interesting period of your life. Yeah, the Secretary of the AUA was a uh, fantastic opportunity, something that I never aspired to and never would have anticipated that I would be selected, nor would I be able to perform in an effective way just from the standpoint of really not knowing my capabilities. And through the guidance and mentorship of not only former secretaries and presidents, but also friends and colleagues and mentors, and most importantly, a very talented AUA staff and leadership at the AUA, I had the opportunity to grow into the position to learn more about myself, 
to develop skills that I didn't have and I hope contribute in, the, in a small way to where the AUA in neurology from an organized medicine standpoint is today. So Secretary of the AUA was a fantastic four years. It was a challenge in terms of time management and it was a lot of work as many of these opportunities are. And towards the end of the last one or two years, uh, I was going through some things personally that made it a little bit more challenging. But with that said, it's something that I'm glad I did. It's one of those things in life that you always look back at and think of, well, what would have been different if you hadn't done it? The biggest thing it did, in addition to the growth it provided me from a professional standpoint, it, it also gave me the opportunity to meet fantastic people across the world who have become close friends and from whom I've learned a lot. Yeah. So you mentioned, you know, time management, difficult decisions, balancing that on top of a clinical practice. I mean, it's not all high fives all around and roses, I can't imagine. Yes. I, I, I had always made it a priority to be there for my children, to be there for their activities, to be engaged as much as I can and there were times during those four years where I wasn't able to be there as much as I would have liked to. So that would probably be the biggest thing to reflect on. And I think uh, I'm very proud of who they are and how they've, they've grown. And I'm proud of them in terms of their passion for social justice, their passion for helping society be better, not just for them, but also for their children. And so I'm very fortunate to have three wonderful kids. Yeah. So, so you mentioned passion for, for social justice and responsibility. And this year with the war in Ukraine, you've made a couple of trips over there. Tell us a little bit about, you know, the kind of processes that took place that you came to the conclusion that this is something that you need to do, should do, want to do. How did that synthesize? Yeah, did you, I guess maybe I could step back uh, about 10 years, maybe 15 one of my relatives was suffering from depression and I was sitting in Minneapolis thinking, oh, I, I should reach out to him, go find him, bring him back to Minneapolis, see if I could help in some way. And, and I didn't. And that was probably the most important time in my life where I, I thought about something but didn't act. Since then, I've gradually become a little bit more receptive to an idea that pops into my head that maybe you should do something. And rather than thinking about, well, how am I going to do it? How am I going to pay for it? I just do it. And that was how I came to the decision about going to Ukraine. I was inspired by Laura Bukovina, a fellow at Fox Chase who I had a chance to work with, which is a resident at, at Case Western. And I was inspired by her dropping everything, leaving her young family and heading to the border to help. And so that, that was the decision after first giving some, some donations, thinking of, you know, I'd like to do something more than give money. And it's, it's not to say that financial support isn't meaningful, it's very meaningful. It's not to say that there aren't a lot of needs here in San Diego, in California, in the United States, where one can similarly dedicate time to helping those in needs. What I got most out of these trips to Ukraine is that often it's hard to appreciate people's suffering unless you see it in their eyes. And, uh, it really helped me understand and appreciate their suffering. And I think that drives me to do more when I get home. Do you think any of those early experiences in Belfast were consciously or subconsciously weighing into your decisions to go to a more unstable part of the world and 
actually seems like much of your efforts have been actually directed towards children. I think first, my dad's stories about the partition and how that disrupted his life, being becoming a refugee, moving from what's now Pakistan into India. You could say that in a way we were refugees moving from Northern Ireland to, to Canada. So seeing how conflict disrupts people, relating to that in a small way from a person standpoint, reflecting on our childhood and, you know, history classes, learning about World War One and World War Two, and thinking this is history, it's never going to happen again. And then being faced with an opportunity where it is happening to try to help and make a difference. Those were the things that, that went in my mind. And part of it was the idea of trying to motivate people by my actions. I think it's in today's society where social media and the news cycle, it's easy to be a passive participant in comments and form opinions, but then taking that interest and passion and turning it into something that might potentially make a change is a step that some people don't do. And so I, my hope is that more people do that. Well, I, I think it it's working. I mean, at least among the urologic community, you've obviously been visible and I think are held in high regard. And when you come out and comment on social issues, you've been planning this urologist for social responsibility, maybe gets a little bit more attention than perhaps coming from somebody else. But tell us a little bit about about this initiative and project, the impetus for it, and you know what you hope to accomplish. So I think the theme that many of us use to to fuel our passion for life is that we'd like to have a better role for our kids. And with certain circumstances in the United States over the last year or two, I think that passion has been fueled. I have for one, and I suspect others are, are looking for a way to effectively use that passion in a meaningful way that could hopefully lead us towards a path of change. And so the idea of having urology for social responsibility, so not just urologists themselves, but the broad community of people who are in urology, including our children, come together and talk about important social issues get guidance from people with knowledge about things like advocacy and raising funds, being an activist in a meaningful way, in a productive way, in a safe way, something to take us beyond Twitter and to a place where the people that we hope will listen and we hope will respond will do so. So that's the goal of this meeting that we're planning to have over Martin Luther King weekend in San Diego. and. Uh, as I mentioned, we will hopefully have people bring their children who, if they're over the age of 12 or 14, maybe feel like their world isn't what they want it to be. Because just as now we try to engage the patient voice, I think we need to engage our children's voice, not only to hear their fears and their thoughts, and likely we'll hear some unique solutions that we haven't thought of, but also to empower them to start to make the changes that we all feel need to be made. Well, I think obviously the easiest thing to do is to sit back and, and comment or not even comment and be passive. And I certainly think it's been inspiring for many of us, again, within our community to see people that have a voice, get out there, put their necks out, take a stance because, you know, the, the issues that you mentioned are, they affect us, they affect our patients, they affect our children. And, and it's really, really something. 
not to take this too surreal and abstract, but when you kind of reflect back now on, you know, the, the personal informative years of your life and the professional twists and turns and kind of where you are now, what are some of the things that, that have kind of struck you as you reflect back both personally and professionally on how you got where you're going? Again, I'll come back to the word fortunate. I feel very fortunate for the paths that have, have presented themselves and that I've been able to take. I feel very fortunate from the support of my parents and my family, as well as those who I've had an opportunity to interact with. I feel fortunate for the experiences and many of those experiences are unexpected. When I tore my ACL playing hockey, I uh, had a better understanding of what 10 out of 10 pain means. And so that's the type of thing where if one doesn't have that experience, you don't have the opportunity to take that experience and modulate how you respond to people for the rest of your life. I had the experience of being depressed and suicidal, and that has changed my ability to respond to others who suffer from mental health issues. It's helped me uh, appreciate how complex the issue is, and it's helped me to temper my enthusiasm for people who say they have the answer, that the answer to burnout is this, or the answer to suicide and depression is that. Because it is a very individual thing and what might work for one individual won't necessarily work for others. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that, Manoj. It's not an easy thing for any of us to do, certainly not in a public forum, but I absolutely resonate with that. I mean, the first first term is fortunate. You know, the series of events that kind of gets us where we are is a blessing. And then, you know, undoubtedly there's there's a behind the scenes reality of any given person, which isn't just a bed of roses. I mean, I could go on and on unending with the number of things. I mean, patient complications, family struggles, illness within the family, tough family scenarios, loss of kids that have shaped me. And it's really hard. I feel bad putting on the spot to ask you to kind of summarize some overarching themes of your life. But I do think it's important and appreciated that seeing people that are so overtly successful and impactful dealing with the tough stuff and, and sharing that is invaluable. And I think that the way that you interact with people and, and make it a safe and comfortable space has really nearly certainly been such a key to why you've been such an instrumental leader. It is. I think in terms of that topic, I think the thing that people get right is the importance of sharing experiences and the importance of someone who's suffering to know that they're not alone. From there, it really becomes a matter of trial and error. Is it helpful for you to talk about it or is it harmful for you to talk about it? Are you receptive to medications or counseling or are you not? Is it better to be alone or be in a group? All of those things I think can be helpful for some, but not necessarily helpful for others. But knowing that you're loved, knowing that you're not alone, those are things that are important no matter what type of struggles you're going through. Couldn't agree more. One very concrete example for me is handling a patient complication, internalizing it, the self-loathing, the berating, the loneliness, everything that comes along with it. But you talk to the next person that operates, it's not a unique feeling. And just being okay, opening up a bit and knowing that you're not alone, like you mentioned, can be incredibly therapeutic. At least it has been for me. Well, I, uh, you know, we didn't really, I guess our initial topic was going to be dietary recommendations for patients with kidney stones. And we took a pivot. And I think that this is certainly been enlightening and educational for me 
therapeutic in many ways. Well, I have been drinking a lot of water while we've been talking, so I don't think the audience can see that, but maybe they heard it. I apologize if they did. So hydration is the most important thing, did you? But I, I really appreciate you kind of sharing your story and your journey, the, the highs and, and clearly some of the lows as well. And, uh, you know, I think on, on behalf of our community, really thank you for uh, what you're doing and, and look forward to what you continue to do. Well, Ditcha, I really appreciate the opportunity and also the community that you're building here on Backtable. It's really a fantastic thing. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at underscore Backtable on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable is hosted by Aditya Bagrodia and Jose Silva. Our audio team lead is Kieran Gannon with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhorter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Ishan Sangwan and Vedavi Patwardhan. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.